0: just want to give you guys a brief apology before you start our second episode of I Spit on Your Podcast. Finster number one had problems with her mic, so the quality of her track is not that great, but we really still hope you guys enjoy the show. Thank you so much for following, and once again, enjoy <laughs>
1: Spin on your podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody nitty needles and Kelly steps away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion.
0: And welcome everyone. August is 90s horror month for the spinsters of horror. A decade close to both our hearts, one we've both been excited about getting into. There are two movies which we believe are quintessential horror movies of the 90s, Scream and The Blair Witch Project. Both turn the genre inside out and inspire the movies going forward. They are truly iconic. So, Kelly, what is your favorite scary movie? No, Jessica. Are you fucking kidding me? What's your favorite scary movie? Oh, my God. Where did you get that? <laughs> it's a surprise. I did that is crazy. That is please please do not call me with that. Surprise, Sydney.
1: <laughs> That's a surprise. Are you shocked this screen?
0: <laughs> You're having way too fun with that. Now the podcast is just gonna be this. It should be. <laughs> the screen was released in
1: nineteen ninety six. Okay. That's it for now. Might come okay. out later, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, on December 20th, 1996, Wes Craven reinvented the slasher genre with a game changing film called Scream, originally titled Scary Movie Fun Fact, and then, as we know, turned into the super funny parody movie Scary Movie. It's starring Neff Campbell, Drew Barrymore, Courtney Cox, Jamie Kennedy, and Skeet Ulrich. The film follows Sydney Prescott, who struggles with the upcoming anniversary of the murder of her mother by Cotton Weary. She's stressed and amped up by the murder of a fellow classmate, Casey Becker, and the media storm and murder investigation that descends upon the tiny town. Throughout the film, Sydney is confronted by Gail Weathers, a reporter who believes in Weary's innocence and is determined to make a name for herself by involving herself in the investigation. Suspicions fly as Sydney begins to receive calls from the killer. And then she begins to suspect her boyfriend, Billy. She becomes terrorized by the killer along with her friends who targets her and all of her friends by using horror films as part of a deadly, deadly game. What's really neat about Scream, I looked up actually, I love origin stories overall. So Kevin Williamson is the writer of this and around 1996, he wasn't really known in the film world And around that time, there was a serial killer named Daniel Rowling. He was the Gainesville Ripper. He killed, raped, and mutilated many. Many women, some men, but mostly women. So there was this interview in 1997 with Williamson, and I'll read it to you now. It's really the origin of Scream, which I found really, really interesting. So this is Williamson talking. I was being scared out of my mind. During the commercial break... I heard a noise. He was learning about the Gainesville Ripper. Sorry, that's the backstory on that. So he was just watching CNN and like watching the news and listening all about this serial killer. So during the commercial break, I heard a noise and I had to go search the house. I went into the living room and a window was open. I'd been in this house for two days. I've never noticed the window open. I got really scared. So I went to the kitchen, got a butcher knife and got the mobile phone. A mobile phone. I love that. (laughs) I got my mobile. Williamson subsequently called up one of his friends who proceeded to tease him about classic slasher movies down on the phone, saying that he shouldn't venture outside, as that would mean a killer could sneak in through the open front door when he wasn't looking. Williamson continues, one thing led to another. I went to bed that night so spooked I was having nightmares. So I woke up at like three or four in the morning and I started writing the opening scene to scream. And... Kevin Wilson and went on to write Dawson's Creek, which and a, a variety of other things like also I know what you did last summer, but became definitely a household name within the horror community and with teen pop culture overall anyways. Again talking about origin stories, which we both love and we will continue to share at each podcast. So, my Scream story. So, I am a huge huge fan of the entire Scream franchise, but we're just talking about the first movie. I'll focus on that. Uh, so I'm a huge fan of it. So I actually had Scream on VHS and regularly watched it with a group of friends. We knew all the lines. And honestly, I still do. I could probably recite that whole movie. I've been watching it since 1996. Um, and then we would like name ourselves after the characters. So I was Sydney, the bookish brunette my boyfriend at the time we called him randy as he was super nerdy and loved movies my best friend lisa we called her tatum because she was sassy and quick-witted and (coughs) large-chested her boyfriend was definitely Stu. seriously he could have been matthew lillard's long lost brother just due to his mannerisms his like body shape and his um unusually long tongue
0: that's an interesting fact to say something about someone. <laughs> <laughs> they had an unusually long tongue. What?
1: <laughs> it was known as he showed everyone. <laughs> uh, um, this movie is quintessential in 90s horror and holds a very, very special place and strong place in my horror
0: heart. Yeah, Scream did not really hold a special place in my heart. So mine starts out in like a grade 8 sleepover with a bunch of friends and we decided to rent Scream. And because at the time the movie was really cool and everyone was talking about it. and this one particular friend of mine, she was, her family was pretty liberal about the films that we used to watch. So I saw Scream, I saw a couple other, like I saw Casino, all these really random films that you should not be showing children in grade So we're all camped out in this, um, in her living room, in sleeping bags on the floor. But the thing was, there's these large bay windows and they lived out in like a wooded area. So it was kind of like this like, too close to home kind of feeling especially when you watch the first beginning scene with Drew Barrymore alone in the house with like the huge windows and it's just I remember being terrified and spending most of the night in my sleeping bag like curled over my head just kind of like peeking out and watching it and covering my eyes when I needed to so that was the first time I saw Scream, and honestly I hadn't given the movie or the franchise a second chance until about last year when I listened to Alex West from the Faculty of Horror Defending It. And I thought, I have to give this series another chance, and I'm glad I did because I do love it, and I can truly appreciate the film series for what it is now. So, Kelly, what do you like about the Scream series? I love Scream.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm done. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so the things I love about Scream the most, let's say, is... Besides, you know, taking away the nostalgia factor of it because I watched it when it came out and Child of the 90s and whatnot, it's really hip. It's like a really cool horror movie. It's fun. It's funny. I love how self-referential it is. I really love that because obviously that's just, again, what's, which we'll talk about is how you, it's so very unique to that movie in itself. It was just super fun. I fucking love Sidney Prescott. She has been, she's just such a horror female icon and final girl that it's incredible. Um, and then I also really love Randy because Randy is me. He's a dude, but he's me. So watching a movie with a horror fan that knew all these movies and could make all these references and jokes. And it's like, he is me. And I love this. I can totally relate to this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So my likes of the film is I love the soundtrack. I always love a uh, movie soundtrack from the 90s. So the lines, like you said, being a horror fan, especially now that I know more about the horror genre and I watch the films now, and I'm like, oh, I get that reference to that. And I get that reference to that. Or like, I start to understand the whole meta-ness of the film. I didn't understand it when I was younger, but I do now. And I definitely can appreciate Randy as a character. He is also one of my favorites. And I think the best scene in that film, Ghostface is like walking up behind him and he's like yelling at the TV screen at Jamie Lee Curtis being like, behind you, behind you. And yet like, Ghostface is, like, right behind him, too, and I'm like, this is so meta, it's great. (laughs) Behind you, Jamie. Behind
1: you. He's so drunk. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) Behind you.
0: (laughs) What do you dislike about Scream? What do I dislike about Scream? Uh, I dislike Billy uh, and Skeet Ulrich a heck of a lot. do not like him at all. (laughs) So,
1: what's also funny is I also... My only dislike of this movie is Skeet Ulrich. So less so Billy as a character, but the fact that Skeet Ulrich, though being a teen heartthrob of the time, is a goddamn terrible actor. He's just the worst, and I don't know how he had any of these roles. Probably because he was very cute. But no, dislike Skeet Ulrich.
0: Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I I completely agree with you. I don't. I don't see what the appeal is in him. I did not like him when he was in the craft. So, of course, I'm like, I don't even like him in Scream. And then I just don't like the characterization. I don't like the character of Billy. He just reminds you of just how he's always so forceful on Sydney and how he's, like, always just thinking about himself and essentially just, like, what's in his pants. That you're just like, dude, your mother was murdered, like, raped and murdered, and that's all you think about it, is just trying to get her to be normal by having sex with you. And it's just really bothers me. Because it just reminds you of those really jerky guys in high school that you're just, like, you want nothing to do with.
1: And he also never apparently. Yeah, shows, apparently, like so. he looks like
0: a total ball half the time. So. <laughs> that hair, <laughs> like, the hair. How can you not that. like like accused for murder? Like you just look like a murderer. Like sorry, yeah.
1: So gross.
0: We addressed <laughs> at the beginning of the podcast the importance of Scream to the horror genre. So, in our in our eyes, how do we feel is important?
1: So horror movies before the release of Screen, you know, it's there essentially a lot of like the late '80s, early '90s. Uh, Uninspired sequels of already established franchises like we had more more Halloween movies Nightmare on Elm Street Friday the 13th Even more and more child's play movies There were a lot of like low budget fare side note a lot of full moon movies came out in early 90s, which is amazing But you know, they're not big budget, you know, not a lot of people talk about them Nothing really super right home about a lot of straight-to-video fare there were, of course, some gems, uh, you know, Seven, which I love, you know, Candyman, Dead Alive. Uh, so that was kind of where things were at before Scream came out. You really, It seemed to revitalize a slasher movie, kind of a nod to those movies that we loved from the 70s and 80s. And after the success of Scream, which had a $14 million budget and total earnings worldwide was over $170 million. So... Scream took horror to the mainstream, which we hadn't seen in a very, very long time, and maybe not even ever. I don't have the stats on that. But, you know, it really just kind of revitalized the the whole genre. Then we started seeing Urban Legend, Cherry Falls, Final Destination, Valentine, and of course, the Kevin Williamson written, I Know What You Did Last Summer. You know, Scream seemed to be made for horror fans, which is amazing, um, because you can really tap into a different type of market and, and tone of a movie by doing it that way. Uh, we, we kind of, we felt like we got to play a role in the movie and be inside of the movie instead of just being a voyeur. So it really just changed the common slasher, horror tropes that we were seeing and became a satire. You know, it was incredibly thrilling and comedic and I have to say goddamn Brilliant. So there was an article entitled Scream Turns 20, How Wes Craven's Masterpiece Changed the Horror Genre, which is really what this whole podcast is about. So it said, Scream made it okay for horror movies to be smart, scary, and funny all at the same time. It inspired a new generation of slasher movies and paved the way for recent horror films. And it all started with one phone call.
0: Exactly. So when we, when we talk about the film Scream, what we really want to look at is the sense that it's redressing a genre in the horror genre, which is meta horror. And which is really interesting because when you look at the idea of uh, horror meta, we're also kind of looking at other older films. So this is not so. While Scream revived it and changed the way uh, meta horror happens, it was actually started way back in the 1950s, and their horror films would reference other horror films or past iterations or other sequels. And some of the most other well-known meta horror films are the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, Fright Night from the 1980s, where it's like, it makes fun of vampire traditions, but there's respect for them. The film Return to Horror High, which is a a horror movie that's being filmed in a high school, but it's it's also a horror movie happening at the same time. So, but they weren't as very popular. And then, of course, we get Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is what's also very meta, where it's like major callbacks to all the original films and the iconic image of Freddy Krueger. But then we get Scream. So when Scream came, it was not only that the way it transcended the genre is because it became very self-aware and it was a very self-referential slasher. And it also revived the genre by starring an all-star cast from the 90s, from, like like we said, Neff Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, like just like a huge bill. And that became very popular after Scream, where we saw, like you said in I Know What You Did Last Summer, you had Jennifer Love Hewitt, Freddie Prince Jr., Sarah Michelle Gellar. So we started seeing that more happening. But also a lot of the stuff that happens in the film is very tongue-in-cheek, but also truly terrifying at the same time, too. So it was a really interesting time for horror, and that's where we saw that revival. The interesting thing is, though, that's happening now is that it was perfect for at its time, but we don't really see meta horror happening as much as we do now. I think it's a lot of people are talking now that the conversation is over, and that when we had Cabin in the Woods came out, that was the final, ultimate statement on all things horror in like, the horror meta genre. But doing so, my research, um, it was really interesting finding the five rules for meta horror. And I'm just going to kind of quickly, briefly go through them. And this is what we'll see, you see in all these various films, which we all know in Scream, rules are very important. So in rules, uh, first rule, set the rules. So they set the tone of the movie by setting up the rules. Rule four, people will always ignore the rules. So despite what they're being told, people will still break the rules and they end up paying the price. Number three, deja vu. The presidents to base the rules on. So rules are based off of the old movies or old things that have happened in films. Rule number two, rules are meant to be broken. Both the protagonist and the antagonist both know that they are in a horror movie and they'll willfully break the rules. And number one, why so serious? It's important to make a serious movie, but also one that acknowledges how fucked up it is in a humorous way.
1: Damn, I didn't know there were five rules to meta-horror, so I love this. (laughs) Look at our stupid research. (laughs) And thought... (laughs)
0: Look how (laughs) smart
1: we are. (laughs) Um, I also found, uh, an actual definition of what meta horror is. And I hope I don't, um, I probably is just going to be a reiteration, uh, meta horror, a movie knows and understands the tropes and cliches of horror movies, folding them back on themselves, playing with audience expectations and even allowing the characters to understand that they're in a horror movie. So you feel like you're inside the movie. We talked about Randy. He's the horror fan. He's us. Like he kind of keeps bringing us back into the movie by talking about horror movies. And, but, you know, moving on, I think it's also important to touch on Wes Craven. You know, he is an infamous horror director and we know he's a horror fan. So, you know, having this directed by him really made a whole, whole lot of sense.
0: Well, it's also really interesting to like discover that he originally didn't want to do it when he, he was the first approached to do Scream. He was like, "No, no, I'm trying to get out of horror." Like as much as he enjoyed, and he's really good at it. He was actually looking to move away from it, but when he saw what they were doing and he saw the cast, he's like, "You know, fine, right, I'll do it." And I'm I'm really happy he did because I don't really think any other director would have totally done it as totally well,
1: agree. We you know he did a variety of movies, but something you know so iconic in the horror genre, Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, he was definitely the perfect choice. Uh, it seems as though, sadly, Scream 4 was his very last directing job. So, at least he, like, started it and ended, you know, his his career with Scream, which is pretty pretty incredible. So, another quote, because I love quotes, because people are way more articulate than me. Uh, that Craven and Williamson, Kevin Williamson, created one giant love letter to the horror film genre with smart, playful nods to the origins of the slasher but well, the film tweaked and improved cliches and stereotypes. Girls are just as smart as guys in the story, fighting back rather than cowering in fear, and they are no longer punished for exploring their sexuality. You know, Scream gave us the iconic killer. It's a very quotable movie. What's your favorite scary movie? Obviously, that's... Like, that was being talked <laughs> talked about and said by horror fans for many years afterwards, and we all know it now. So, it's so iconic. Wes Craven, we, we mentioned... Nightmare on Elm Street, Uh, he gave us Nancy, which she's such an an incredible, resourceful final girl. And then he kind of, I don't know, I want to say upgraded. Honestly, I really am going to say upgraded. He gave us a brand new type of final girl, one that fights back, smart and resourceful. Also, I I think Nancy is that. But overall, um, so finally, a final girl that's no longer being punished for her sexuality Scream gave us Sydney Prescott.
0: Yeah, and so looking at the, the concept of the final girl like we know that typically the final girls that we've seen in older horror movies from the 70s and 80s they were typically virginal they were the smart ones they were the ones who abide by the rules um, and it was always their friends that ended up getting killed first because their friends um, deviated from the the moral norms of you know not having sex well they had sex and do drugs they would drink. You know, and they were just very crude and not very ladylike. So the final girl was typically always the one who would survive because she would follow the rules. And also too, she was aware of what kind of what was meant for her at the end. Like if she got to the hands of the killer, like she had already seen all her friends die around her, like she she knew it would come to her end. So she, they had to be resourceful, which is always which is so very well and great. But at the same time too, what we see differently with Sydney is that. While other final girls are resourceful, she was much more resourceful in the sense that I really enjoy, like, in, like, the first scene where she, like, uses a computer to dial 911. And I'm just like, wow, you've actually never seen a final girl kind of do that. Or even, like, they try and pick up the phone, and the phone's dead, and they just kind of, like, went, or- went away, and they get really freaked out. But she really does fight back. And she also, too, like, she follows her first instinct. And this is what gets in the beginning of the film is that when Billy comes to her room after the killer has, like, is attacking her... And she sees the cell phones robbed. Like, her first instinct is, like, it's Billy. He's something wrong. I'm like, yes, trust your gut. Like, you need to trust that. But we obviously don't see that. Well, she struggles with that throughout the rest of the film. But we also see that in the beginning of the film, that despite the trauma of her mother's death, she's doing the best to move on with her life. And it's not until the killer starts to terrorize her that she suffers flashes of PTSD. But she fights back. She continues to assert herself when she suspects Billy. She's, she punches Gail, which I think is a great scene in the film fighting against the killer like and also in the final battle like she uses their own game against them which is also also very similar to what nancy did to freddie in nightmare on elm street she uses his own game against him so very less craving really.
1: very much so i totally agree she's uh, incredibly resourceful it's a good point about that 911 call on the computer like she didn't even yeah she didn't even have to think about it she's like yep i'm locking this door in the special way she always locks her door And I'm doing this. You know what I mean? I agree. It's pretty incredible. You know, Wes Craven shows Sydney's decision to have sex because she makes an actual decision to, you know, act upon this desire that she has with Billy. Like, this is her choice, and it was not at all exploited. The sex in this movie, which there's very little at all, really, I think the only sex scene is hers at the end. It's not exploitative. Um, we don't have any nudity. We see a bear Billy's back and we see Sydney's face and she shows some vulnerability and it's it's like this is my choice. I'm feeling this out, I'm going to be doing this. Um, you know, you talked about this. So Sydney, I mean, you see her taking charge, but she even calls out the, you know, the killer's bluff on the phone, right? Like that's ballsy. You know what I mean? With everything that's kind of going on, she just like, nope, yeah, you can see me. What am I doing right now? Yeah. Fuck you. You know, this is not, um, this is not happening. She trades blows with him. Anytime they meet, she protects herself better than fucking the police ever could. You know, what makes her a really great core icon and a final girl is that, you know, she isn't superhuman. She isn't perfect. You know, she has her flaws. She's a complex human being. She has the ability to make mistakes. Um, But she never allows herself to become a victim of her circumstance. Like she just keeps on, you know, trekking on, let's say. Scream not only tackles the problem of women's narrative overall, giving Sydney the room to explore herself. Doubt, her guilt, her sexuality, really all in the span of one film, but also allows her to come out on top and give her narrative new meaning and a context that, you know, she can subscribe to. You know, she's a heroic, strong female character and she ends the movie. I have to say, along with a help from fucking Gail Weathers. So nobody really talks about Gail Weathers, but she is very career oriented. She's tough. She's assertive. She's really strong. She's smart. She's even kind of bitchy, but maybe that's just the stigma of those types of women, right? Like she actually comes in at the end and helps Sydney kill Billy. She's the one that comes in and fucking shoots him. So really it's the the double final girls I love Gail Weathers, you know? I think she should be talked about more.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. It's, you bring up a really good point about Gail Weathers that everyone just goes after her. She's like, oh, she's such a bitch because she's all about her career and stuff like that. But at the same time, too, like that actually really does happen in life. It's like when women focus too much on their careers, it's all about how bitchy they are and how they're, they only think about one thing and they're so insensitive to other people in their play. So I think you bring up a good point that there should be a conversation. Totally.
1: Been. So I just feel like, Sydney is not your average "quote unquote" scream queen, but really kind of the the response to the tropes that we had seen in this genre for so so long. You know, as Randy mentioned, you know, in 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 the movie that women in horror films are forced to follow certain rules that we want to make it till the end. But you know, she's a new scream queen. She's a new final girl. I have a quote here from. Now I can plug Alex West's book. So it's from Alex West's The 1990s Teen Horror Cycle. And she has incredible insights through, you know, for this movie, and especially Sydney herself. So she says, Scream is Sydney's movie and is ultimately about the struggle of a young woman to control her own narrative in the face of misogynistic forces. You know, that ending, like, don't tell me you don't, nobody, like, nobody tell me you don't get pumped at that end. There's no more punishment for being a powerful woman or being a sexual person or being an imperfect woman. When we talk about Final Girls, you know, we know that it started with Laurie Strode. She's amazing. She is iconic and she has her place in the genre, but she's also a damsel in distress and she gets saved by a man. She's victorious, but she's not in charge of her own story. So I say out with the old and in with the new not my movie right (laughs) exactly exactly
0: (laughs) so we know that with how popular the film scream was many things come after that in hollywood we're gonna have scream two scream three scream four and then of course a tv a netflix series this tv series so do we want to give a couple comments on those uh
1: yeah, definitely. Um,
0: like I said, I, I love the
1: whole franchise. Scream 2, actually, I just damn adore. Because it's just like Scream, but then in a sequel, and it's all talking about sequels and the rules of sequels. Like, it just ha- has that same formula to it that I just goddamn love. Also, Sarah Michelle Geller's in it, and I just love that.
0: Yes. <laughs> I don't. But it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard to watch that scene with her in it because you just like. She's running and just like, damn it, Buffy, just like turn around and do like a roundhouse kick Fuck. and solve your problem. Yeah, like... just
1: stake that motherfucker. <laughs> Whatever. Human or not, yeah. they need to be staked. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? You know, it's also it's it is devastating that Randy dies. Let's not talk about it.
0: <laughs> upset yeah. But it's nice to see a little cameo throwback to him in screen three with the video when he talks about uh trilogies and how the killer is going to like work on the whole idea of trilogies. Yes. Exactly. Cool. Let's
1: bring Randy back always. Just bring him back from the yeah, dead. Exactly. Can we have uh, zombie
0: Randy next movie please? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And then of course we get Scream 4 as focusing about remakes and reboots. And the like, yeah,
1: yeah. in the era of supreme technology. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. I quite liked Scream 4. I liked all of them. Scream 4 I I quite quite liked
0: we get the TV series, and I know you did your review on this month about the screen TV series on Netflix. Uh, myself, I watched it, I only got into finishing season one. I liked it in the beginning, however, I did find it a bit predictable. I did like uh, the character of Noah because he was a nice reminder and throwback to Randy. And I just felt like when I, I got halfway through episode one of season two, and I was already bored, and I ended up not planning on finishing it, so quoting. You know, Sydney from, from the second movie, uh, or or even I think the third film, like Don't Mess With the Original. That's kind of how I, I felt about that.
1: Yeah, so I have a full review on it, so folks can read that. But overall, I really, really enjoyed it. It was a great... I thought it was a great inspired by and a nice kind of throwback to uh, the the original Scream movie. So I really, really enjoyed it. Definitely there are some some problems within it, but looking at something as a whole, I really, really enjoyed it. I wish sometimes we could go back and experience things for the first time because when I re-watched it for the review, I didn't like the first time I watched it I actually loved it. Second time I watched it I did just still really enjoy it. And yeah, Noah Foster, honestly, is my absolute favorite part of that whole show. Like I would he just needs his own show. He's just such he's such a nerd. He does a podcast. He's like the newer hipper randy so god i just i loved him so much
0: so that's our discussion on the scream series and we'd love to have you guys engage with us more on social media like twitter or facebook what your feelings and comments about scream but i think now it's important to kind of get into a film that i also feel is very important and it was a genre-breaking film in the 90s i don't know you kelly but
1: yes we're going to talk about the blair witch project folks another quintessential we feel, incredibly important horror movie um, of that time.
0: Yeah. So, in October of 1994, three film students, Heather Donahue, Joshua Leonard, and Mike Williams, disappeared in the Black Black Hills Forest near Burkittsville, Maryland, formerly known as Blair, while filming a documentary about the local myth of the Blair Witch. A year later, their footage was found. The Blair Witch project was directed by Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Myrick in 1999. It starred The actual actors, Heather Donahue, Joshua Leonard, and Mike Williams, they use their same names in the film, and was accompanied by a dynamic marketing campaign that contributed to the success of the film and the mystery around it. It was also the film that is believed to have revived the found footage genre after decades of directors avoiding the genre due to its past grievances and association with video nasties such as Cannibal Holocaust and Cannibal Ferox*.
1: The Blair Witch Project is actually one of my... Absolute favorite horror films. I'd put it in my top 10. Uh, I remember seeing, you know, the commercials for it, the the viral marketing, the website, and I found it all very intriguing. I was super engaged in it. I would go to that website all the time and kind of see what's going on. And honestly, there were times when I actually thought that the story was true. Like, it was pretty goddamn incredible that that was something that these people were able to do. You know, the internet was new at the time, so exploiting it, I guess you could say, and using it to what it really could be was quite amazing. I saw The Blair Witch in theaters, and it scared the absolute shit out of me. The sense The sense of frustration and dread and panic with all of the characters is actually what I felt for myself. Side note, that's why I really goddamn love found footage movies. It's one of my favorite subgenres of horror because it really puts you in the moment of the movie, and I find them the most horrifying. The moment in the Blair Witch Project when they're all in the tent, it's been like a couple of nights, and they start hearing the children's voices in the forest, and then something starts hitting and pushing on the tent was truly a moment of absolute paralyzing terror for me. That
0: scene is terrifying. Terrifying, especially. I think the next night or something, the next morning they wake up and they start finding stuff in front of their tent, and I'm just like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> <laughs> this is just where I die. I
1: would just live in that tent forever.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so for, for me, I was also enraptured by the marketing for this film. I had always been interested in anything to do with witches, both good and bad. And to be honest, I was one of those people who first saw the marketing and I did believe it was a true documentary. Like this marketing was genius. So, however, I did not see the film until I was in about university. I watched it and its sequel, *Book of Shadows*, with a group of friends on a Halloween night. That was our tradition back in the day to rent a horror movie. They would let Jessica usually rent the horror movies because at the time I was a big chicken shit and I always end up renting like the most non-scary or the most B movie one. But this night we rented *Blair Witch* and *Blair Book of Shadows*. And I think it was not the best time to see it at the time because everyone was drinking and people were talking over the film. So I never really got the true impact of the film. However, a few years back, I ended up picking up a copy and on a stormy fall afternoon while I was knitting with my cup of tea being all spinster-like, <laughs> I decided to watch it and I got the true impact of fear from this film. I still... Like I, like I said, I still get terrified when Heather finds a wood bundle in front of her tent in broad daylight. I find that very disturbing.
1: So what I like about the film is just, okay, we talked about the found footage of it and how that just charms me and terrifies me all the same, but it's gritty. It's really raw, you know, the shaky cameras. And sometimes you don't even know what the fuck's happening because they're running through the woods at night. You know what I mean? It's just, it's kind of, it was so refreshing, actually incredibly refreshing at the time and it's so scary. It really, I just find, it's just a terrifying movie.
0: Yeah, what I, and what I enjoy about this film is I enjoy the story of the Blair Witch. I love how subtle the scary moments are with the stick figures, and just, like, the sounds on that, like Kelly said, the children's voices, or when Josh, or when Josh was missing, and they hear him yelling, but I also like how intense the fear feels in broad daylight, which I think, which makes this film very unique, that you feel scared for these people in broad daylight and yet at the same time you're not supposed to feel scared in the sunlight. Like the sunlight is supposed to be the thing that protects you during the day, but it doesn't. And so all the emotion is very raw.
1: And dislikes. Honestly, nothing. I don't dislike anything about this movie. I love it.
0: I agree with you. I there's nothing I dislike about this film. The only thing is is that sometimes found footage of it tend, tends to make me a little bit queasy So earlier when I mentioned about the the, the genre of found footage in horror, there actually is a history that goes with this. And when I was doing my research on it, it was really interesting to find out that the first technically found footage film was in 1980 with Cannibal Holocaust. And so anyone who is really big horror fans will know what Cannibal Holocaust is all about. And this film is regarded as the first genuine found footage film, but was notorious for its graphic violence and sexual brutality. So it definitely was... Has been made on the video nasties is not a film that you w- walk into watching lately. Like you really need like I've never seen it. I don't ever plan to see it. I will not watch anything that actually has animals killed on screen. But they had a marketing campaign where the actors had to go missing for the film, and the director was actually brought in by, court, by the court systems because they actually thought the director the actors were killed. But they were actually alive. They were just paid to not be appear, not to appear, and they were trying to help to market this film. It's a very disturbing film, and so this film was so disturbing. And then, of course, *Cannibal Ferox* came out on the same style of the found footage that a lot of filmmakers just try to stay away from the found footage genre for a while. They really wanted to distance themselves from that type of those types of movies. But in 1999, when the Blair Witch Project came out, we saw a resurgence of the found footage genre. We saw the resurgence of this type of marketing that came, but they using the same gimmicks that *Cannibal Holocaust* did. So. Typically when you look at a found footage film, they tend to be a little messy and chaotic, and sometimes it can be it can it could hurt the film or it could be the film's success. And that's where marketing is very important, and that's where for the Blair Rich project. Initially when it first came out, people didn't like it because they just they couldn't get behind that whole idea of found footage. But because it had such a great marketing campaign, as Kelly and I have discussed about, you know, the website, everyone was really drawn to watching it. One of the things that's really interesting about the Blair Witch Project and the idea found footage is that one of the themes that we see throughout the film is that when you're lost and alone, technology can't help you. And especially in the 90s, we saw a huge boost and boom of tech and a lot of uh, unresolved anxieties about it. And people weren't really sure. They want to really trust themselves, you know, following a GPS or, you know, really trust their cell phones work or worker of that nature. So it's really interesting how failed tech leads to deliberate in- ambiguity. And the viewer is often pulling into various narratives to try and make sense of reality. And this is information that I'm getting from John Muir's book on horror films, FAQ. He really goes into some great detail talking about the idea of technology and how it fails in the blow-rich and how we're seeing various different narratives and how they interact with one another. With the found footage style of filming, you see a lot of fragmentation of reality. And that's typically because we're seeing multiple interpretations from the various viewers. And we sometimes a lot of times see various different film perspectives, either from the first person or from the third person. So life seems very distorted and it doesn't seem very real. I and mean, we really see this in the Blair Witch when Heather is always filming and the guys are feeling really frustrated with her. And there's that one point in the film where I believe it's Josh is filming or Mike. One of them is using the camera and they look to her and they're like, oh, we understand now why you, you look through this, this lens all the time is because what's happening to us now doesn't seem real when you're watching it when you're watching it through a camera. So this is where we're getting that sort of sense of distorted reality. But they're also at the same time too we don't have any rules. So whereas you know previous film we talked about scream, there's a bunch of rules and rules being broken and the found footage genre, there are no rules. Anything can happen. As kind said it's like a moment in time that this is happening to these people. What's really also great about the Blair Witch Project too is that it doesn't have um, a common narrative. So Whenever we watch a film, we'll always have a first act, second act, and third act. But we never really see, we don't see that in the Blair Witch. We're literally seeing a moment in time. We're not seeing any learning arcs from our characters. The film really emphasizes that at the end of this film, it's up to the audience to come up with how it ends. There's no, you're not going to get that peace of mind. You're going you're gonna to walk, like, and we've seen this in other, I've seen this in other found footage uh, films where the way it just ends, you're left with being like, what happened? You just, you have to know, like, did they learn anything from it? Did they, Experience and something changed that person gets saved. We're like, no, the movie's over. That's it. That's all we us all the footage we have left.
1: So obviously, we know there's like so much thought and work put into this movie. But you know, the portion of what I love about the Blair Witch Project is that it's so just like raw and gritty. So the Blair Witch Project actually was made on a budget of about sixty thousand dollars and then grossed about two hundred and fifty million worldwide. That's intense. Like found footage movies can be made for very, very cheaply and can do really, really well. And I, when I was reading about it, you know, so much of that was actually improvised. And there were a lot of real reactions to weird shit going on in the woods. Like the directors made all those stick figures. The staff made the weird children sounds. Like it was a very kind of hands-on DIY type movie. I thought was uh, really, really neat about it. So I have this really great quote from uh, the director, Eduardo Sanchez. The actors were great. They didn't really shy away from anything. They were very brave to do what we asked them to do. And I think that they trusted us and that was probably our biggest accomplishment during that time, just to be able to tell these actors, we're going to do all this stuff to you. We're going to have you in the woods 24 hours a day and we're going to scare you at night. And they trusted us. Somehow they trusted us. <laughs> uh, and Heather Donahue, uh, the actress in the movie, had something interesting to say, too, that I'll, that I'll state here. All those found footage movies now are union movies. Those are actual movies with actual budget, so it doesn't have the same punk rock ethos that Blair Witch had. You couldn't have made Blair Witch with SAG actors. There was no meal penalty or meal breaks. We were shooting 24-7 without breaks, with nobody really directing us. It was definitely feral filmmaking, which you can't do if you have a craft services table and real safety all around you at the time. That poses quite a challenge to a lot of current found footage films. You'll never quite capture the wilderness or what the internet was then. It was neat. It was just like so raw and
0: brutal, (laughs) you know, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I love about the Blair witch. It just feels so real. When you find out it's not, you're like, Oh, it's
1: incredibly realistic. And again, like I feel like just like ahead of its time, it was pretty incredible. There was, I made a note that this movie is actually pretty, pretty terrifying. Another quote, because I love quotes. The Blair witch project was groundbreaking and more to the point, terrifying. Rather than watching from the detached safety of our living rooms, we found ourselves living through the terror with Heather, Josh, and Mike. We shared their growing unease and jumped out of our skins at flashes of movement caught on night vision. The shaky camera work and close-up selfie shots exaggerated the sensation that this was the real deal and that we were voyeurs, witnesses to something we really couldn't understand. So intense.
0: (laughs) So intense. And that's because because uh, the film was so intense that we, and the Blair Witch was so successful that it reinvigorated the found footage genre, and just as I said, so films like Wreck, Quarantine, Diary of the Dead, Cloverfield, and then the whole Paranormal Activity franchise all came out not long after the Blair Witch, and people have come to really like Kelly said, really enjoy the found footage genre, that there was something to say about it, and like earlier, as we mentioned, One of the reasons why people like the found footage genre is it typically costs less. You use unknown actors. You do it from the first-person point of view, and you use less materials. Cheap budgets. Way to go. Make a found footage uh, film. So, really, anyone who wants to make a movie, just do a found footage (laughs)
1: film. Exactly. We will. um,
0: (laughs) Pretty much. And, honestly,
1: there's some really goddamn terrible found footage movies, and there's some really fantastic, spectacular ones. Um, We'll definitely go further down the found footage rabbit hole in a later date because it's one of my favorites and it's it's really just a really really interesting uh sub of horror
0: so what's really interesting about the Blair Witch and one of the reasons why we brought it up and because I think we quote ourselves to be a feminist podcast is we want to look at the ad- and address Heather's story because I know for me I really enjoy the character of Heather in the movie and I know that other people have talked quite passionately about her and Uh, Last year when Alex West wrote the article about Heather in Women and Guts, she brought some really good points that at the time I had thought about, but at the same time too I felt, yeah, I can relate to that. And so when we watch Heather in the film, we see a woman who's strong-willed, she is stubborn, she's passionate, and she's a bit of a control freak, which I feel like those are all words that describe me at times. (laughs) Ha (laughs)
1: ha. Control freak, definitely.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Um... And what happens is that the group turns on Heather as does the audience. And I remember this cuz when I first saw The Blair Witch, too, I was also annoyed with Heather. And then watching it now as an older woman, as you would say as a spinster, I now totally relate to Heather and I get very frustrated and I want to defend her. But I they see they they see her as bossy and they bitchy and that she's deemed as she's unlikable because she's passionate and she has a very dominant personality. And like I said, I feel like I really relate to the character of Heather. I I've had experiences where I was working on a project and I was told I was too dominant and I needed to not be so dominant because the person I was working this project with felt I was overshadowing them in some way or and like just or in the really we had created differences but I ended up starting to kind of retract within myself and I felt like I started to lose my voice and I felt I was losing creative influence and direction and and I just remember feeling like I felt like Heather like here I was, too much of a dominant personality, a bit of control freak, and I'm being told to kind of back off, and I did, and then I just really lost sight of what I originally was trying to do and became very unhappy. So when we look at Heather, we see someone who represents what happens to women when they end up in leadership roles. Her actions lead to discovery while others want to play ignorance. As a leader, she takes accountability, and this is what I also love about Heather as well, is that she is willing to take accountability for her actions when she knows that it's a result of her actions, not if she's being accused of it, and this is what something when she is saying sorry when things go wrong like she's always apologizing like throughout the film she's always apologizing but she's also trying to defend herself, she's also trying to make the film, and then you get the character of Mike, who always was blaming Heather for things, and he blames her for losing the map, when they're attacking her and Josh is so angry at her and you lost the map, you're the last person on the map, and then we end up finding out that it was Mike who kicked the map in the fucking river because he just deemed it as not worthy, or was getting getting them more loss. And what does he do? He just laughs about it. He laughs, and he just walks away like it's no. Oh, I wasn't doing anything, laughing. But no one attacks Mike. Josh has just given up, and Heather's like, well, how could you think that was hilarious? Why would you do that? But the whole time too, when they were accusing her of losing the map, she was like, okay, I'm sorry, I apologize. I did. I, I know I didn't lose the map. The map is somewhere. But all throughout the film, she's unwilling to give up. You know, she she takes on the leadership role. She cares about Mike and Josh. But she's unwilling to give up, despite how bad things are getting, despite how bad the guys are treating her and attacking her. She just continues uh, forth, and this is what I really enjoy about Heather. Is I actually do really relate to her, and I think she is a strong character, and I don't think she gives she didn't get enough credit.
1: You know, I never really put honestly that much thought into kind of Heather's plight forever up until doing some research and and thinking more you know thoughtfully about the Blair Witch Project and read some articles there wasn't many but there are some odd articles there's one that's pretty intense and it's called the Blair Witch Revisited that had just everything exactly what Jess had said so I never really thought about it but obviously yes they, they went into the woods because it was Heather's Project but beyond that I mean Nobody could have predicted what was going to happen. And Mike and Josh really goes goddamn overboard. When I thought about it, I'm like, can you just fucking ease up? Yeah. By now, it's everybody's fault that everybody's lost. You know, Mike and Josh kept blaming her. I really think they go overboard. Like an example is when Josh has the camera and he's videoing Heather and he's like, are you going to write us a happy ending? Like, she had fully scripted this all out. I'm like, what a dick move. Just a complete dick move. And, like, she just is fucking crying. I'm like, (laughs) wow. Wow, right? So, it seems as though these men have some strong opinions or discomfort from having a woman in charge. Which is just really too bad. It's really, really too bad. At the end of that article, actually... I'm going to assume this is actually Heather Donahue responding to it. But she in response to the article that Blair which Revisited said something uh, in response to it. So I'll read a little bit of it to you. Uh, she says, I think you make a good point about the discomfort of having a woman in charge. I think that's true. The directors were going for that dynamic in casting the film. My performance was often accused of being shrill. I think we can all pretty much agree that if my words were coming from a man's mouth, that charge would not have been levied. My character's confession at the end of the film was an attempt to take responsibility, which I do think was appropriate. It was her project with great power comes great responsibility. Isn't that how the saying goes at the end of the day, without my character's drive, there would be no footage at all, nor without the presumably female witch. So there's that the men are incidental to what is drawn at the metaphysical and physical level by feminine hands. Blame is irrelevant.
0: Yeah, that's, 100% how I feel about that. If all, if all those things happen, if Heather was... I don't even know the name of a man. Like Keith. If Heather was Keith, <laughs> totally different story. Right? right? It, really, it really well could be. <laughs> they just went
1: so overboard. So we did a bit of a... just commented on the Blair Witch sequel, Book of Shadows, briefly. So we know that there's that sequel, and then Adam Wingard directed a newer Blair Witch movie just called Blair Witch that came out I believe two years ago. So there are a couple of sequels that we could make a comment on. I'll start. Uh, Book of Shadows has a lot of nostalgia for me. There's some quotes in that that I just love. Um, But you know everybody's such a fucking walking stereotype. The witch in the movie, the Wiccan, sorry. Uh, the goth in the movie, just everybody's such a cliche, which you know I find very charming, but it's just like a little bit over the top. Um it's definitely pales in comparison to Blair Witch project, though it's supposed to be, you know, these people are fans of the movie, let's go take a look at it. So it's fun. It's I don't think it's amazing, but it's definitely a fun movie. Uh and then Adam Wingard's Blair Witch. I was super excited about this because I actually really love him as a director. And it's all in the woods, and it's kind of found-footagey style, but they use a whole lot of like GoPros and different, you know, technologies. That again, that goes even over my head. So it really takes away a lot of the the fear that can be produced because you're de- you definitely couldn't get lost in the woods. The amount of technology they brought, you know, so it's just it's just not. Not as gritty, not as raw as we talked about, you know. I still enjoyed it because I, I kind of have that, like, nostalgia and, and love for Blair Witch. So any if I could see anything that's kind of related to it, I just, I am kind of drawn to that. But it definitely wasn't scary. There were some jump scares, I'm sure. But
0: it's just, you know, overall, just everything pales in comparison for sure. It had been many, many years since I had seen the sequel Book of Shadows. Like I said, I saw it in university. Um, and when I did see it, I remember feeling somewhat disappointed that it lacked the same feeling and style as the first one. I did find it interesting because they made it into an actual film, um, but I just remember not really enjoying it as much. But I'm going to, you know, watch it, maybe just check it out again for nostalgia's sake. But however, while I wish the Book of Shadows was similar to the style of the first film, when I saw the new Blair Witch movie, I did not really enjoy it. Um, while it was following the same style and somewhat similar story the emphasis on technology failing as Kelly's already brought up like they bring all this high tech with them and it all fails okay then you know we've seen this already happen the ever-present darkness I did not like that one of the reasons why the Blair Witch really impacted me so much was that everything was happening in daylight like things would happen at night and then things would happen in the daylight and that's what really bothered me so the fact that it's all of a sudden dark all the time and there's no sense of time. I was like, well, this takes away the fear factor. Like, this just makes it very supernatural, so it takes that away from that fear factor. As well as in the in the film, I think the only scene that really scared me in that film was the scene where she's, like, crawling underground in like, the tunnels, and I think that's because I'm also claustrophobic, so that was very, very like, terrifying to me. Mm. I was like, oh, my God, I would literally just die in that tunnel. Like, you just leave me there. Leave me. <laughs> Fair enough. But I, what I found was that at the end, you see the Blair Witch, and the whole sense of terrifying mystery around our antagonist is lost. And that's what made the movie so great, the first film, right? You never saw the Blair Witch. It was all mystery. It was all myth, right? The moment you give us, the moment you actually show us our, our, our myth, you take away the mystery, you take away the fear around it. So that's how I feel about the
1: sequels. Blair Witch Project Original is very subtle. And sometimes horror movies these days aren't as subtle as perhaps they could be. So great points. So horror now, you know, where are we at with Scream and Blair Witch? Kind of like post Scream and Blair Witch project. You know, what I think is really great that after Scream, the horror genre became a bit more female or feminist friendly. You know, of course, not every entry into the genre is going to be, you know, a perfect, you know, roundabout way of showing women in horror. But I think from then on, things changed a little bit, which is really quite great. Uh, a a quote from an article I read says scream, how scream changed the way we see women in horror movies. Sorry. That was the name of the article. Women uh, who are ready to take charge and fight for their lives. Women who should not be underestimated. Women who don't adhere to any kind of rules unless they are their own. Sydney wasn't just the final girl in Scream. She became the inspiration for any woman after her who has managed to make it out of a horror movie alive and on her own terms. So I think it became definitely a more female-friendly genre, which is definitely welcomed. These two movies, they're in my top 10. They're absolutely fucking brilliant. And they're fantastic. And there are people, and I see this in the community, like stupid comments on things about Scream and Blair Witch saying, oh, they're not scary. The Blair Witch is stupid. They're probably 22-year-old people. But, you know, it's... You have to think about any of these movies in the time that they were released. It may not scare you now, but, but you can't take away the fear of when it was released, right? And I find that a lot with some people, they can't just look at things objectively and realize that... Those movies when they came out were pretty revolutionary, stating all the reasons that we've already talked about. So any haters for those movies, I really don't understand because you have to look at things as they are in the genre they are. Yeah, movies from the 1920s aren't scary now, but can you imagine being people going to the movies and watching them during the 1920s? They're goddamn horrifying, (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, you gotta you gotta take things as they come, but these two movies definitely changed the way the genre behaved for women, for, you know, the revolutionized, the slasher movie, the found footage, and it, it, they were incredibly uh, influential going forward for, for horror movies after that.
0: Yeah, and I almost, like, reiterate almost everything you said there, but I won't at the same time too. It's interesting revisiting these films especially all the films that we've done all month of the 90s, and seeing these positive representations of women in these, uh, horror, these horror films, seeing the whole transformation of the final girl, understanding these characterizations uh, of uh, Sidney Prescott and Gail Weathers, of Heather Donahue, and just, I think, you know, when I remember seeing them when younger, you, you related to those characters because they're women and because like they were strong and powerful they're strong and powerful women and strong representations of themselves but it's interesting watching these films now as an older woman and experiencing some of a, like a similar themes of what some of these experience these women experience you know trying to take control of your own narrative trying to you know being a strong independent woman in a male dominated society and you know, and how you're treated as either bitchy or bossy, and so how you react to that, and how we are women, we're trying to take, trying to take accountability for our actions, but at the same time, too, you know, fight for our right to be able to say something or, uh, or control the narrative of, of our lives, and so when I look back at these films now as an older woman and watch and continue watching them, I see something new every time, I see something I can keep relating to, so yeah, I think when people say, like, all oh, these films are not very enjoyable, they're not scary, I'm like, you know what, it may not be scary to you now, but Maybe if you look at some of the more subtle themes that's happening in these films, that's what's terrifying. You know, to me it's terrifying that people are lost in the woods and the two guys turn on Heather and become pretty much her enemies and like, really at the time they should be sticking together because she's a bitchy, bossy woman, they perceive her as a threat. And so they need to, in some way, bring her down a Well done, Jessica! <laughs>
1: so that ends our episode on horror in the 90s with our focus on the genre, absolute genre-changing movie, Scream and the Blair Witch Project. We want to thank Dance of the Dead for our outro music, Robeast, Blair for his assistance in editing our episodes, and all of you listeners who have been engaging with us and supporting us. It's been an incredible, I guess now going into two months of our project being, you know, launched and live, and it's been amazing. We're having a great time. We want to remind you to follow us on our website because we are a, I'm going to say, multimedia type project. We have blog posts, movie reviews, Uh, monthly picks and obviously this monthly podcast our website is www.spinstersofhorror.com
0: you can find us on facebook uh spinsters of horror you can also find us on twitter at horror spinsters we also have an instagram account at spinsters of horror and you can also email us at spinsters at gmail.com so tune in next month when we talk about vampires and try to answer the question as to why we are all so drawn to them why we have sexualized and fantasized about vampires since the premiere of Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula. Until then, remember, the future of fear is female.